Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Contractor Evolution. My guest on the show today is Mark Bradley, founder and CEO of Landscape Management Network, or LMN for short. Since its inception in 2007, LMN has become the most trusted software in the world for landscape professionals. It is the backbone for over 3,000 companies and about 250,000 users. Now, I met Mark about five years ago, and it's taken me a minute to get him on the show, but I've always deeply admired his business mind, his body of work, and the platform that he's built. But what I find most fascinating about him is that unlike many tech CEOs who've spent their entire career on a laptop, Mark's actually rolled up his sleeves and done the work too. Because see, prior to launching LMN, he built one of the biggest landscape companies in Canada, TBG Environmental. Through some highly strategic vertical integration and a penchant for taking on the hard jobs many other shops shied away from, he grew his company up to $50 million a year in revenue with 300 employees before selling off a few of its divisions and diving into LMN full-time. This guy is a serious player. Today's conversation in particular is about how your leadership needs to evolve as you scale from zero to $5 million a year, and then again from five to 10. We talk about why revenue per employee is the most profit-inducing KPI and how lean manufacturing principles can help you drive it. We get into how to use visible scoreboards in your office to gamify production rates and keep your crews pushing the tempo on projects. And lastly, I get his take on how AI will shape the future of the construction and trade space. I loved, loved, loved this chat with Mark. I hope you do too. And to check out LMN, click the link in the description. You're watching Contractor Evolution, where we unpack the systems, tactics, and skills you need to take your fast-growing contracting business to the next level. You're here to learn what it takes to scale up, work less, and increase profitability. You've come to the right place. Stay tuned to learn what separates the new breed of contractor from the old school and welcome to your ultimate guide on the business of contracting. Mark Bradley, it's really good to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for having so me. So I want to wind back, wind back the clock uh, a few years, maybe a, maybe a couple decades actually. When and why did you start... Uh, your your landscaping business, TBG Environmental, kind of walk us through that chapter of your life um, and and when it began, why you decided to take that leap in those kind of early days. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, so I, originally I finished high school and I decided to work in the trades. I, I had worked in landscaping and worked on farms growing up and really enjoyed the the physical work. I played hockey um, as a kid, and I just really enjoyed the the hard work of of the trades. And so, decided to start an apprenticeship, and I selected um, steam fitting in the nuclear industry because it was a good paying job and seemed really cool at the time. I wanted to learn how to weld and and do metal work and whatnot. So, it was a great pick for a trade. I. I finished my apprenticeship working in the nuclear industry and went on to um, to uh, really focus more on project management. So 
I did college at night school and uh, a few full-time stints more on the project management side and kind of switched into that, but quickly found that I just wasn't really happy working in a plant or working inside. I really loved the idea of working on lots of different job sites, working outside, that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I transitioned into uh, owning my own landscape company over the course of a few years, just kind of doing a bit of both for a while, but started my landscape company from my apartment. I had a, you know, 600 square foot apartment with a front porch with a four foot crawl space under it. And uh, so I bought my first pickup truck and started uh, landscaping from there. My first shop was under my front you, porch. Um, um, you ha- so that was that was how it got going. You you had a you had a pretty good gig going there though. Like you're doing steam fitting in a nuclear plant. It's probably a cushy job, and you decided to kind of take the leap out of a realm of relative comfort into a complete unknown. Did people think you were crazy? Did you just did you just need to do it? I mean, what was that uh, what was that fork in the road like, and and why'd you take the plunge? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there was kind of two parts to that. First off, it I was making great money, um, but I was also paying, you know, 50% tax here in Canada. And I found that to be a little demotivating. It just seemed like the more um, I earned, the more tax I paid. And I found it was hard to get around, you know, working in in, a, in an organization like that. And I felt that um, it was also very limiting. I felt like I was trading my time for money. And, you know, in order to make more, I had to work more. And I really started just feeling like I was working seven days a week and I was probably contributing a little bit more than some of my peers, managing much bigger projects, um, bidding on larger projects and just felt that uh, I wasn't really earning more money. So I, I just decided that I would be better suited to to do my own thing. And I always loved working outside and I liked the the real mix of work that um, I could enjoy landscaping, a little bit of, you know, steel work and masonry and mm. carpentry work and concrete work. It is work. very multidisciplinary. Variety. It is very multidisciplinary that way. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. It doesn't get enough credit for how, like, the the craft of landscaping does not get enough credit for sort of how technical, how difficult, um, how nuanced, and and how skilled the people need to be to actually accomplish it. That's a very common thread of frustration with landscapers. People don't understand how hard this is. They think it's just mowing a lawn. Yeah. Um, so uh, I I feel that I remember for years when I shortly after I quit, that was the first thing everybody, they said, you quit your job to cut grass. Right. <laughs> they didn't realize that I was trying to uh, do really sophisticated landscape so, projects. So but, you started this yeah. thing, you started this thing, uh, which, which we were joking offline, you, you, you called the beach gardener, uh, and then that would evolve into TBG, um, to be a little more mature sounding, you know, get be I, cause I was saying, I don't think municipalities are are giving out, you know, massive, massive landscape projects and building parks and doing retaining walls to the beach gardener. So somewhere along the way, you changed the name to TBG Environmental. But maybe so maybe you can just take us through in a few minutes the like the story of its growth, because at the end, this is a very large, very sophisticated uh, organization with sort of a few divisions within it. Take us through zero to, um, I guess, sort of when you exited it and, and just that growth story. Yeah, sure. So um, 
yeah, it was really just a kind of a neighborhood landscaper, if you will. I wanted to do really nice uh, landscape design build projects. That's what I set out to do. I set out to work a little bit less, um, maybe make more, pay a little bit less taxes, I said earlier, and just really um, build something for myself. Um, and so as I started taking on more and more projects, I just found that the project sizes were growing. We ended up buying more equipment. We kind of went very quickly from doing $5,000 projects to $50,000 projects to $500,000 projects to $5 million projects to $20 million projects. And so the projects just kind of always continued to grow. There was more demand for um, landscapers that could take on more of a GC type role for really complex outdoor projects. And so the business grew um, very quickly. And in many areas, we, we were doing really large residential projects. We were doing parks for the government. We were doing a lot of uh, wetland restorations, shoreline protection, uh, river realignments for infrastructure projects. Um, we, we really started to um, branch out into many different areas, a lot of stormwater protection. Uh, I even built a few large landfill sites over the years because we had so much heavy equipment. So as the business grew, um, I started to vertically integrate. So I bought my own gravel pit. I started to manufacture mulch. I've started my own nursery, um, eventually my own trucking division. So the business really started to um, scale up, I think, because I was trying to vertically integrate. And I was always trying to be more efficient in the way that we did things. And I had a really strong focus on revenue per hour. And so I always felt that I could generate a lot more revenue per hour if I could control the flow of the materials. And so that kind of caused a lot of the growth, but also made us more um, competitive and attractive, I think, for some of those larger mm -hmm, projects. Mm -hmm. You had um, many different things. You, you kind of rattle off the list there. So you're doing quite a wide, quite a broad range of, of different highly technical projects. Was that something that you were pushing for and saw an opportunity in where it's like, hey, if we learn how to do, you know, whatever you call it, river realignments, if we learn how to build parks, these are big projects and we can go get them. Or was it more like an organic progression where that's just what clients were asking for? That's what, you know, word got out that you guys did work and then you're getting phone calls from people and you go, yeah, sure, we can hop on that. Was it was it an intentional thing or was it a more organic thing? Yeah, I would say a little bit of both. I would say I always had a, a big um, thirst for projects that would involve lots of equipment and lots of material because we could put more dollars in the ground faster. In other words, our revenue per um, hour um, went up, way up at when we were doing those types of projects. So I think I was kind of interested in that type of work, but it kind of happened organically. And the way that took place, I was doing really large residential projects that typically when somebody spends 20, 30, even, you know, I did a few projects where the homes were over $100 million homes, they, they build those houses in uh, properties that are usually, you know, hanging off a cliff or sitting on the water. And so there's a lot of really complicated conservation laws around water. And so 
we got good at at working with engineers and mm. um, government agencies to to perform that work. And because we had, you know, billionaire clients that were willing to do it right, we got to do it right. And so I think I just formed good relationships with engineers, um, with those that are putting the tenders out, and we just started getting invited to bid on those projects. And so it kind of happened organically. And then also along the way, as I got better staff and and people that were more equipped to do those civil projects, um, they would go get the work for me. So I just found that it kind of, it was a bit of a snowball effect. It yeah. just, uh, I think you kind of walk and then you find yourself running and before you know it, you, you, you have a whole team doing it. In its, in its best years, what with you at the helm, Mark, what was sort of the size and scale um, in terms of revenue, in terms of team size? Uh, what, what were TBG's best years? Um, so top, top number that we ever reached for employees was right around 300. Um, I, I would say my favorite years were probably when we were around 50. I, I loved the business at 50 because I knew everybody. We were super efficient. Everybody was just kind of gelling and, and I truly enjoyed running the business. As the business started to get bigger, we decided to unionize to do public parks and highway projects and things like that. I didn't have as much fun running a big union enterprise company as I did a more of a, a smaller, um, tighter knit company being completely yeah. honest. Um, so I would say my favorite years were probably 50 employees, 20 million in revenue. Um, but yeah, biggest year would be, you know, 300 employees with 50 million in revenue. Yeah. Um, so definitely a decline in, in enjoyment, um, efficiency yeah. and, and fun factor. <laughs> um, I've got a question about about business stages because you have been through them all with, you know, TBG and then, you know, now in a completely different arena with LMN. Um, what are the most critical things that a leader should be focused on to get their business from zero to five million? And then two-part question, how does that change or what evolves around the focus when they're going from five to 10? And those numbers, by the way, are somewhat arbitrary. I think the question is more like getting zero to that sort of midsize and then getting from the midsize to the large size, if you will. Like what is what is the, what? how do your priorities change, your focuses change? What problems are you solving in, in that those early days that, that you're then not solving in the later days, but then what problems become, you know, uh, of more importance to you, just kind of talk us through those stages because you've been through them. Yeah, the, I mean, that's a really good question and it's a, um, a tough one to answer in in a, in a short period, but I'll do my best. I would say zero to five, um, for me, I felt like it was really important to understand my overhead, my budget, um, how to achieve the profit that I planned in a systemic way. In other words, how do I take my overhead and my cost of goods sold, which is labor, material, equipment, and subcontractors, and how do I take that and make sure that I'm going to make profit um, repeatable? Because I think once you figure out how to match up your, your overhead and your pricing, and your production rates in the field, then you've got a recipe that makes money. 
Um, and so zero to five, I think for me was getting that right and making sure that I understood how to make profit um, process driven, something that we could do over and over and over again. And then as we kind of transition from five to 10, it became how do I make that repeatable using systems and processes and training programs that ensure that I can do this at scale. I can I can teach others to come in and estimate and manage work and perform the work in a way where we're going to get consistent results, regardless of which crew is doing the work. And that that is a sort of um, art in itself. And I think that gets you from five to ten. And then I think after ten million, all kinds of things change again, and it becomes you know a little bit more complex from the perspective of you know, feeding that beast, making sure you've got enough work, making sure that you've got enough cash flow, making sure that your um, risk is is minimized legally and all sorts of things like that. But uh, definitely, I think there's there's two distinct phases between zero and 10 million. That's a great answer. I think you nailed that. Uh, I, I know it could have been a lot more long winded and there's nuance there. But in, in broad strokes, that's a, I'm very satisfied with with what you just said. You've you've mentioned a couple times this idea of like revenue per hour or revenue per employee, um, and really what that is is a indicator of how efficient you are on site, off site as well. But it's it's really showcasing um, how how quickly and well you produce revenue with the resources that you have. And you mentioned offline. I think you said like you know on a on the rankings of like landscaping businesses in North America, you guys were, I mean, think in the mid sixties, correct me if I'm wrong, mid sixties in terms of size, but you were like number one in terms of revenue per, per employee hour. Um, when and how, and why did you clue into this thing being so, so, so important? And then, and then on the heels of that, how did you double down and can, and, and continue to invest in that specific sort of measure of efficiency? Yeah, for for me, I think as I was growing the business, I was really aware of um, costs and estimating and that being from the background that I had, as I said, working in nuclear, working in, you know, um, uh, mechanical industry where every project is is a large project. I had to really understand overhead. I had to understand markups and estimating and profitability. And so I, I think I honed that skill in a in maybe a little bit more uh, technical industry than landscaping, or at least typical landscaping. And so I was really aware of that. But I think I I felt that for me to really build something great, I needed to be able to pay my staff really well. I needed to um, operate with consistent profits, and I needed to really understand what my job costs were on an ongoing basis. So as I got going, I really focused on that in the first few years. And that allowed me to really have the business insights um, that would drive the scale that that we did. And so revenue per hour became a key performance indicator or a KPI. Um, I'll, I'll probably use the term KPI moving forward, but KPI is just some a, a way of measuring how we're going along against a plan. And so revenue per hour for me became a really important KPI in my business 
to assess whether or not every day, every week, every month was going well for a crew. So we had many different trades um, in my company. We had equipment operators and masons and carpenters, electricians, plumbers, landscape technicians, um, and more. And so every type of trade has slightly different revenue per hour. But for us, it was really important that everybody had a budget, um, every crew that is had a budget, and they understood how much revenue they should produce each day, each week, each month, and for the season or year. And so I, I really tied everything back to revenue per hour because it's easy to measure. Um, billing tells us what we're generating against the hours that we're paying out on payroll. And so that became a, a real um, guidepost for me along the way. Were you able to foster some buy-in adoption, even like excitement even around pinning their performance or their bonuses or or their encouragement on this idea of of revenue per hour? Because a lot of people would just say, well, you know, my guys are hourly. They show up, they do some work. They don't, I try, I try to sort of bang the drum of, of efficiency and moving more quickly, but they really don't seem to care. So I guess my question is, what did you find useful in communicating how important this was to the business, but then also kind of connecting it to them and their income and their growth as well? How do you get them bought into that whole idea of producing more quickly? Yeah, I, I, I would say I struggled for many years with this and always struggled. And I think every business does. So I'll start by saying that. But what I found worked the best was creating a crew budget, which allowed the crew leader, whatever term you're using, a, a foreman, a crew boss, whatever that happens to be, but the leader of the of the crew that's performing the work out in the field. I always wanted to give them a budget that basically allowed them to see how many hours they were going to sell or perform uh, or produce each year, whichever term you'd like to use. And so if that's a crew of three and they're working a full year, each person typically works about 2000 hours a year. And so that would be a 6000 hour crew. And then basically what that budget would do would allow them to understand how much revenue they should produce. And so we'd set the goal or the production goal for that crew. And if they hit the goal, they'd unlock a bonus. And if they exceeded the goal, then you'd put a gearing mechanism on that bonus. And so when you do that with a crew, they want to understand how to measure it. And so revenue per hour is the easy way to measure it. Um, if it's a $1.2 million crew and they're going to work 6,000 6, hours, you can, you can do the math and come up with, a, with an hourly or daily or weekly or monthly production goal. And so if you give them ongoing reports of how they're performing against that goal and what they're producing in revenue per hour, it makes it easy for them to see if they're tracking toward um, unlocking that bonus. And I, I think the, the higher the bonus for the crew leader, um, the more likely that is to happen. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I, somewhere between 10 and 20% of their annual pay um, should be added if they meet the goal. Because I think that gives uh, business owners a lot of reassurance that the person who's ultimately carrying their wallet is 
as careful about their money and every decision and all of the efficiency on site as the owner would be. Um, so if you're, you know, a, a eighty thousand dollar a year crew leader, and you're really counting on getting that twenty or twenty five thousand dollar bonus by actually hitting the goal, um, it means something to you, and you'll you'll go that extra mile. And I think you know drilling down to the uh, apprentices or the skilled trades that work for that leader is super important as well. And so another kind of five to ten percent for those people, but again. If you build that into your cost of goods sold and your estimates, you're actually billing for that as you estimate your work. So it's not coming out of profit. I don't believe in taking my profit and giving it to my employees. I believe in charging my customers for a bonus. And if my employees get the projects done on time, then I have the money to pay them without dipping into bonus. So that's typically how I um, manage the process. So that gamification and incentivization angle is a really interesting one. And I, and I thank you for laying all that out. The other side to this that I'd be curious about when we're looking at revenue per hour is, uh, the idea of waste elimination or having some sort of lean manufacturing type thought process around how you, schedule, how you organize the job site, how materials get delivered and taken away. What sort of stuff did you learn along along your journey about the setting up the environment where the work happens in such a way that they can really excel on this KPI that you deemed super important? Yeah. So I I was I think I was in business for four or five years and I was always really focused on efficiency um, and I was buying quite a bit of Caterpillar equipment at the time and I had a, an invite from Caterpillar to do a plant tour down in uh, the Chicago area, Peoria, Illinois. Um, and while I was touring their plant, I, I started noticing these boards on the walls and it, they were waste elimination boards. And I, I, I was more interested in these boards than I was in you know, the line of how they were producing the machines or, you know, some of the other big, big, shiny machine uh, excitement uh, techniques that they use. Um, but the, 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 the waste elimination boards were really interesting to me. And as I started to look at them, uh, I started to notice lean. And so after that trip, I started reading more about lean and I stumbled on this book called The mm. Toyota Way. And the Toyota way really talks about waste elimination and Six Sigma and lean um, management uh, or sorry, um, lean manufacturing um, principles. And so I ended up developing um, my lean for landscaping principles and really kind of took what I learned from that book and, and some things that I learned from Caterpillar and developed a way of uh, eliminating waste by Use, utilizing some of the techniques that they use, the 5S system, 5Ys, um, an audit process to make sure that we were doing things as ef effectively as possible, and a Kanban system so that all of my employees could um, give feedback to me on a regular basis, just on a whiteboard in my shop at that point in time. And all of their ideas could be visualized and we would um, react to those ideas. And so 
generally what we focused on off the start was eliminating anything that that um, slowed the flow down on a project. And so materials in our business was a really big issue, but equipment was a big issue for getting tools, you know, too many uh, runs over to the Home Depot store, um, suppliers that just didn't deliver materials when they say they would, um, many different things would come up. But along the way, what, what we ended up finding was, you know, the employees were as upset about flow interruption as I was as an owner because their bonus was um, largely based on getting the work done on time. And they felt that when they didn't get the work done on time, it wasn't because they were, you know, taking extra long breaks or smoking too many cigarettes because the supervisors made sure that didn't happen. What the problem typically was were things like broken equipment or the wrong equipment or forgotten tools or forgotten materials, not enough materials, late material deliveries. And so we really started to focus on eliminating that type of waste. And I think in the process, um, we just found many other improvements and we've, we started to focus on getting better equipment that saved time and improved morale and allowed for safer work conditions. And I think many, many uh, improvements came um, of that whole um, shift to the, to the lean management system. We had... Um... We had Paul Akers on the show earlier this year. Do, do you know Paul Akers? You know the name Two Second Lean. He's a he's a really well known author. He's kind of, he's he's a lean guy in the in the lean world, and he's written a few books. He came on the show. Have you heard of him? I've heard of him, but I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't That's read not, his books. But I, I, I well, you'll you'll get the gist of it. Yeah. I mean, you're you're very. It's all the same language you're using. Um, he he came on the show and he said something really interesting, which I've heard him say in a lot of his other content as well, which is like this whole idea of um, sort of efficiency obsession and lean manufacturing applied to a business creates sort of a, a it, it snowballs because the team in a way gets addicted to it also. They love being productive. They love feeling like they're getting things across the finish line as well. And so he he speaks about this idea of you being maybe the spark that it ignites it. But if you do a good job and you kind of support them and there's systems that get built around it, quite quickly that that whole philosophy becomes a team-wide thing. And it's not something that you need to like drive for every single day. Was that your experience as well, where you lit the flame, but then the whole thing kind of kind of took off? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that 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 explains it really well. I think, um, you know, I'm a big believer that everybody in the world goes to work for themselves. Um, if you as an entrepreneur, if you create an environment where that is transparent and you can say to people, hey, like, you don't work for me, you work for yourself. You know, like what you learn when you get here um, is what you're going to carry forward in life. And those those skills and that work ethic is going to serve you for the rest of your life, maybe not my company. And so you really do work for yourself. You know, you're here to support yourself, your family and whatnot. And so I think your purpose in life um, is set by you. And it's not probably going to be just your job coming to work at a landscape company. It's probably going to be much more than that. Mm -hmm. But everything that you learn 
um, and everything that you put into this role will serve you um, and your life in, in the now and in the future. And so generally what I found was by having a management system that focused on waste elimination, people really started to gravitate to that as a way of life. You know, if I, if I maintain a really neat um, job site trailer and it's got labels for every tool and every piece of material and I audit that once a week and make sure that I've got inventory and that my tools are where they should be and that things are clean and tidy, it feels good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that starts to build more purpose at work, but then that carries through to the way people live at home, you know, the way they organize their garage or their own car um, or the way that they, you know, manage their 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 house or their apartment. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you live in a really organized way, um, everything feels better. And I think I used to hear that from people right away. They'd say like, hey, this is this is really different. You know, having to to maintain a really tidy office or a really tidy shop or a really tidy job site trailer or construction project that's teaching me something that I'm carrying into other parts of my life. And so I think it does tend to take on a life of its own. It, it you know, I've always said that culture is nothing more than just the way it is. And if you build a culture of efficiency and organization, um, that's just the way it is. And the people that decide to stick they adopt that culture and it becomes the way it is mm-hmm. for them, you know, throughout different areas of their lives. And so I think it does take a life on yeah. of, of its own. I want to ask you about this, this going back to the, your tour through the shop and you're more interested in the Kanban board on the wall than you are the, the new Caterpillar models or whatever. You recreated that for TBG. We were talking about this offline. There was something on the wall that I believe was updated every day or maybe it was every week, but it had four KPIs. What were those KPIs? Why did you install them there? And what was the net result that you felt it had on the team? Yeah, so for for me, there 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 was probably a few more than four over time. I think I was probably telling you that there's there's four that are most important. Um, for me, I, you know, you can revenue per hour um, for every crew. It's super important that they understand how they're performing that way because that tells them if they can meet the goals that we've set out. Estimated versus actual hours for each project. Again, super important metric. If you're on long-term projects, it's important to know how you're performing. Um, to date. And if you're on jobs where you're in and out quick, you know, if you're doing day jobs or, or jobs that are just a, you know, less than a week, it's even more important because you, it's very easy to get behind. If it's a four day job and it takes five days and there's only 10% or 20% profit in the job, nobody's going to make any money because that extra day just soaked up every opportunity to make profit. And so, the, the two most important ones when it comes to profitability are revenue per hour and estimated versus actual hours. And so those two are, were, were first and foremost. Um, for different types of crews, if they were doing um, anything where there was recurring work, I was always really concerned about customer satisfaction numbers, about churn numbers, how much we were turning over revenue. 
Um, so in my snow management division, for example, that was a really important number to us because we didn't want to ever lose a contract that we had worked hard to get. Um, safety, lost time injuries, that was number one. Um, for us, you know, I always said safety, quality and efficiency. If we don't get that safety right, mm. then we don't have a company. Um, if the quality is not right, in other words, if that customer is not happy, if they're not going to keep coming back, if they don't have good things to say about us, then we don't have a company. And then on the efficiency side, if we can't do it efficiently, then we can't compete and make a profit. And so the the main metrics that I was always looking at related to to those three key areas. And so revenue per hour, estimated versus actual uh, customer churn and our safety yeah. uh, when we use lost time um, injuries. Why is, can you say more about why having that posted on the wall is important versus say stuck in a piece of software that's behind a password that only one person can see at a time? Why is it important to have that stuff highly visible in a centralized place for all to see? Yeah, I mean, I think the people that make it happen are the people out in the field. It's not somebody that's crunching numbers in the office. And so I think when it's front and center, um, they can adjust their pace um, and adjust their work habits to make sure that those numbers are um, where they're supposed to be. I mean, ultimately, that's how I got into the software business. I just really wanted to be able to put that in the hands of my field crews so that they could see in the moment how they were performing against plan. I wanted them to, every time they went to clock in each day, I wanted them to be able to see how many hours were bid for the task that they were about to perform, yeah. how many they've used to date and how many are remaining so that they could understand for themselves if they were on track and if they had you know any time um, to play or, any, or if they needed to kind of speed yeah. up. And I just always felt that if there's a scoreboard, people know what to do. Um, it's just like sports, right? If you're, if you're playing pond hockey and there's no scoreboard, you don't right. try as hard as when they're, when you're on the rink with, you know, a scoreboard and fans and goalies and referees, you know, the intensity just goes up when you keep score. It's so, so then that's a perfect segue. This, the, cause this is what I wanted to hit on next. It sounds to me like this whole journey of figuring out what metrics matter, how to communicate them well, how to reinforce them with incentives, all that whole kind of philosophy that developed within you through the journey. When I have played around with LMN, which I have a number of times, it always, it always, um, it feels like it was made by someone who's actually run a business. Like there's real intelligence baked into it. And that's a real compliment to you guys and your team versus say other, other uh, project management tools, other CRMs, other software platforms out there, which are good. Uh, and they provide some visibility and they provide maybe some, some, some cool functionality, but there isn't, there isn't this sort of like baked in DNA of business intelligence in those, the way that there is in LMN, which sort of by design forces you to plan an annual budget in a certain way. It forces you to connect your jobs to your estimates and track hours. All Like it's, there, there's, 
You know what I mean? Like there's there's very clearly a, philo- a design philosophy that went into it that I think that I think must have come from this sort of this learning and this journey that you went on. Can you talk about how you know this this the last twenty minutes of conversation really inspired the development of the the platform that you built? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, as I over the years, I think when the company was smaller, my first twenty or thirty employees, I had this opportunity to work alongside my employees and explain to them how we made money and how, you know, if things were taking a lot longer than expected, how much impact that would have on company profitability. And I think because I could explain it, they believed it and and they believed it because it they understood it and it made sense. And um, I always sort of felt that as a leader, as a, as a president or CEO, it was my job to make sure that people in my company understood how to contribute to its success um, so that they could lay out a plan to succeed themselves in the company or even beyond the company, as I mentioned earlier. And so the more that I could educate them, the more trust they had in what I said. And so I always made it my business to find ways to show them how to make um, uh, strong contributions on job sites. And so generally it was always just talking estimated versus actual hours or production rates. That's another simple, simple way to simplify um, an estimate. And so what I would do is say like, hey, if we're there to put in a, a interlocking brick driveway and it's a thousand square feet, I knew that we were we only had 100 hours to get that job done. And so I would share that with them and then I would help break it down and I'd say, you know, here's how many hours we should spend excavating. Here's how many we should spend putting the granular base in. Here's how many we should spend um, laying the stone. And here's how many we should spend finishing and cleaning up. And and by the way, we're going to have some time for mobilization and demobilization as well. And so as we build an estimate, I always felt that to kick a job off, I'd show them that estimate. And by showing them the estimate, they understood what the expectation was, they understood what the goal was. And so at that point, all I needed to do was give them the estimated hours up front that way and then provide actual hours along the way so that they could kind of self-manage. Mm. Um, but as I said, that was easy when I had fewer employees. As I started to grow, that became really difficult to do at scale. And so it, it really became important to me to develop an app that would allow people every time they clocked in and out to see those numbers updated automatically. Because at the time, we couldn't find an app that would do that. Keep in mind, we started building software in 2007. That was, you know, before the iPhones were even out. So we we uh, we kind of started building these um, apps on web apps originally, and then obviously uh, over the years converted them over into uh, Google and and Apple apps um, mm-hmm. that they are today. Um, and so this was built originally as sort of in a very uh, uh, LMN was built really for TBG first. You kind of created this for your own company. There's various sort of like self interested reasons first that that would provided the nucleus. And I guess at some point people went, hey, that's kind of cool. Can, can I? 
do you mind if I try it or can you, can you share your login so I can have it in my company? Like when did this go from just uh, an app that you built for yourself to, you know, what it is today, which is, you know, the most widely used landscape CRM and project management tool and financial tracking tool, I think in the world. Yeah, really the way for us, we we started using um, a web app on our own to to kind of beta um, this. And we had built um, an estimating database um, that we were using, you know, just a, a SharePoint type database that that had what is, you know, very much the, the LMN estimating system today in a very rudimentary manner. Um, but what we what we learned from a few really good um, industry consultants was we learned that, you know, creating a budget and then understanding your overhead recovery was kind of that foundation. We had to know how much money we wanted to, to earn in profit each year, and we had to know what our overhead was. Once we knew that, we had an overhead recovery markup. Then we had to be really strong at estimating production rates or knowing how long things take. And so I focused a lot in my early years, that zero to five million on understanding exactly how long things take. And so once I had a really good um, handle on production rates, estimating became very mm. methodical. And so when I went to build software, I took that knowledge and basically created estimating software that would allow others to follow that same path. So we're going to use an overhead recovery system. We're going to estimate labor, material, equipment, and subcontracting. We're going to add an overhead markup. We're going to add profit and we've got a plan. And, and so that became kind of the foundation for everything at LMN. And, and, and over the years, as the different problems popped up in my landscape company, I would sort of build um, to solve. And so that's how we got into training because I realized that employees, as I started to scale the business, didn't understand what I was able to teach firsthand when the company was smaller. So we built a learning management system so that employees could do their training online and learn all of those things that I used to teach on the job, just kind of working alongside the, the others on the crew. Um, and I used to do a lot of like in-person training after hours, before work, that kind of thing. But it became hard to do at scale. And so the online training allowed my employees to take the basic training to understand why it was important to get jobs done on time, what estimated versus actual hours meant, what revenue per hour meant, mm. how to unlock a bonus. And so I built this online learning management system and embedded that in LMN as well. And I guess your question I kind of missed was, how did others find out about it? I, I really, soon as the software was was built and and ready to use, we we started mm. selling it. So in by 2000 and late 2009, early 2010, we started selling the software to other landscapers and, uh, and it just started to sell really quickly. So you've been, yeah. uh, you have found a lot of success in two very different worlds, at least on paper. Landscaping entrepreneur, uh, you know, scaled a, a blue collar business up to $50 million. 
exited that business. You then started a software company. You've scaled that up. You're still at the helm of that. Here's a question. Those two things on paper seem very, very different, but there's always sort of fundamental connections between in the business environment. So when you think about being a big landscaper, being a SaaS founder and your leadership and your business game, what's the same and what's different? You know, oddly enough, I don't think there's much different. Um, you know, sometimes people will be asking me how that's possible. You know, how did you get into the tech world? And I always kind of say, well, it's no different. We've got a product. We've got customer service. We've got sales. We've got marketing. You know, we've got HR. We've got accounting. It's really no different. The metrics are different. You know, running a SaaS business, I worry about slightly different metrics, but ultimately they're not that much different. You know, I worry about customer sentiment. I worry about um, customer churn. I worry about, um, you know, my monthly revenue targets. I, they're, they're, all of the metrics are very similar. There's a few slightly different ones. You know, the, the cost to acquire a new customer, for example, that's a big one in SaaS because uh, we spend a lot more money on marketing and yeah. contracting typically the cost to acquire is, is much lower because, you know, there's usually more work than there are contractors this day and age, let's face it. Um, so there's some different metrics, but ultimately I, I really look at business as, as a game in which, you know, you got to be good at every um, one of those areas that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. If, if we're not firing on product, then, you know, you can't, you can't do anything right if the product isn't right. Mm -hmm. And so I always kind of say, like, let's make sure we're really good at what we do. And then we'll get good at marketing and we'll get good at sales. And, you know, we have to be great at customer service. We can't just be good at it. You know, mm -hmm. if, if in, in either of my businesses, if customer satisfaction was ever fell below 98 percent, then then there was a major problem mm -hmm. that was in my mind. Um we can't, there's 2% that you probably just can't make happy. Um, but, you know, there shouldn't be 3%. That's just yeah. kind of how I look at it. So we're always focused on customer service for that reason. And then having really good financial um, understanding and reporting, I think, is is foundational. And as the business scales, that becomes more important. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, you know, we kind of stopped at 10 million earlier, but as you get past 10 million in revenue in any business, I think having really strong financial reporting and a really um, capable CFO that can provide you with those metrics and give you the insights um, that you need so that as a CEO, you can focus on all of those areas without um, allowing uh, you know the, the financial side to slip. Um, it's a very... Steve Jobsian approach to business, which is build a wicked, wicked, wicked product and make sure it's amazing. And then we'll figure out how to get it to market later. And I, I actually think that um, the modern environment, at least from what I see, is maybe losing touch with that. They get really good at brand and really good at marketing and funnels and lead gen. And they say, we'll figure out the product later. And I, you know, it's, it's ultimately a question of competing pro philosophies. And, uh, but I, I, I think that, uh, I've seen in my limited time here, I've seen way more success, 
success happen to people who go with the former, not the latter? Focus on the product, focus on the customer, the service, and then the brand and the marketing. That stuff will actually, that's a much easier problem to solve and you can do it later. I got to ask you a question because you're a plugged in guy and this is just such a buzzy and sort of, uh, you're seeing it in the headlines, you see it everywhere. And it's a conversation around AI. And uh, and so people are freaking out. Some people are excited. Uh, I think you're uniquely positioned to have some perspective on this. And the question is, when you look at the next 10 to 15 years, let's say 20 years of blue-collar businesses, whether they be landscapers or or specialized trades or general contractors or whatever, how does AI shape the future for this industry? Is it good? Is it bad? It, where, where is it going to add value? Where is it maybe not going to have as pronounced of an effect? Like, what's your take on these? You know, this industry and this new technology sort of merging. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right. It is a very much the 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 buzz of this day and age, and it seems like. Every conference I attend, or you know, mastermind event, or um, even conversations just with peers and customers, it just it is really top of mind for a lot of people, and it's hard not to be. Let's face it; so much has changed in in such a, a short period of time with ChatGPT and and all of the the um, connected uh, apps and whatnot that exist this day and age. Um, for us, you know, we've been building AI into the LMN product for about five years. Um, so analytics engines, I think, are going to drive um, an incredible um, amount of awareness into the hands of contractors. And I think that awareness is needed more than ever. Um, I think when you look at the number of people entering the trades versus the number of people retiring from the trades, it's a it's a scary um, scenario that we're in 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 the construction and service industry, and so I think what we're going to find is um, the insights that we're able to capture from um, better analytics engines uh, will give us insights as to where to focus our efforts on investing in automations. Um, I think AI is going to have a huge impact on what those automations are capable of doing, um, you know, with GPS guided equipment, autonomous equipment, that sort of thing. I think um, training, staff training is going to be better than ever. I, I know, you know, some of the major things we have coming, you know, obviously wouldn't want to share everything, but we're building a lot of um, uh, really complex training for the industry. Uh, we uh, about uh, Close to two years ago now, we acquired a company called Greenius, which was mm -hmm. the, the largest uh, training software package for landscapers. And what we've been doing is really developing tools that will allow landscapers to build their own training programs within our LMS. And I think AI is allowing people this day and age to, to develop and um build scripts and develop even AI video um, training platforms for trades that are going to make it a little bit easier to get people up to speed faster mm -hmm. and produce work a little bit faster. And again, with a focus on safety, quality and efficiency, the, the big three in my mind. So I think 
there's going to be a, a shift in the way that people enter the trades and how quickly they're going to be able to add value. I think, you know, both through training and the use of smarter equipment, smarter technology that provides much better insights in real time to those that are managing the work. And so I think that's going to be a big impact. I think there's mm -hmm. many others, but I think I really see that because that's an area that I've been really focused on. But there's yeah. many others. I, I mean, <laughs> the list well, is almost endless. And it that's is a whole other exciting. podcast. Um, advice yeah, for young for sure. entrepreneurs. There's a young man, a young woman driving around in the truck right now listening to this. They've just started a business six months ago, a year ago, whatever. It's new. It's nascent. It's young. They're having fun, but they're also stressed out. Uh, they're excited by the journey, but it's also, uh, you know, overwhelming at times. What is your advice to that young person starting out on their entrepreneurial journey in this, in this blue collar space? Find a coach. That's, uh, that's number one for me. I think uh, I could have moved a lot faster had I, had I gotten a coach earlier. Um, be, like, make sure that you have an opportunity to learn from someone who has been there. Make sure that you have uh, an opportunity to, to learn from your peers. I was super fortunate to have stumbled on a trade association, Landscape Ontario. And I, I was able to learn from some of the um, the uh, the old guard, I'll say, the, the, those that had, um, you know, 30, 40 years of experience. And so I learned a lot from my peers. Um, and then, you know, from a business perspective, don't operate a business without a budget and don't operate a business without job costing. Um, first, create a budget. Make sure that you understand how to deliver on that budget through a solid estimating um, system and then make sure that you understand how much your work is actually costing so that you can really assess for yourself whether your estimating system's accurate. And that way you can always iterate and get better at estimating and see that you're making money on every project. And so I, I usually start there, but you know, once you've got that, then it's all about people. Um, you don't own a business until you have a team of people who can finish your sentences, who can follow your systems, who can perform the work without you being there. And so once you've got the people, then the systems kind of um, get honed and the business starts to scale. But I, I always say, make sure you have that foundational knowledge, then you focus on people and then you know, the systems and, and processes kind of fall into place. Find um, a coach. That's the order I Get some at. peers, have yeah. a budget, and make sure you have job costing. That's Those are four very, very concrete bullet points for those of you who are just starting out. I couldn't have said, said it better myself. Mark, you said it all. If people... Uh, and in fact, I, I will just give a glowing endorsement. Like if you are uh, if you are looking for a software tool to help guide your business, LMN needs to be on the list. That is especially true if you are uh, a landscaper. Uh, we are big proponents of it. We're partners with LMN. We love the tool, love the team. Mark, where can people uh, go and check it out, learn more about it, maybe schedule a demo, maybe do a trial? Where's kind of the best place for uh, for people to go and, uh, and, and give, give LMN a look? 
Yeah, just uh, on online, you can check us out at golmn.com and um, yeah, sign up for a, a discovery call. And, you know, we typically in 30 to 60 minutes kind of find out uh, what it is that you do and we show you what we do at a high level. And, and then typically from there, we just uh, schedule in a, a proof of concept where we sort of show you your company on LMN. Um, that usually takes an hour or two and then uh, then you kind of know what what it is that we do and what we have what we offer thanks for being here today mark and sharing all this wisdom it was uh i really enjoyed hearing come some of the, the stories about those early days uh congratulations on all the success and uh keep doing what you're doing it's, it's been awesome to chat with you today all right yeah thanks for having me i really appreciate it Thanks so much for watching this episode of Contractor Evolution. If you've already subscribed to our channel, consider sharing this episode with another contractor who you think needs to hear it. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painted Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org. 